I'm turning now to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1 and verse 16. Romans 1, verse 16, the apostle says these words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And our subject is the greatest power in the world. Now the Apostle Paul in this passage prays that he will be able to get to Rome. And God conducted him to Rome in due course. But he prays that he'll go to Rome. And he says these words, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. That's the context. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why would he have been ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Well, possibly for many reasons. Rome, the center of the world, as it were, of that time. The Roman Empire, all conquering. The entire empire was ruled from Rome. How proud a place Rome was. What superiority was felt there over all other conquered, subjected nations. Rome, a place of military triumph and superiority. Rome, a place of learning. We think of Greece as the place of learning. We all know about the Greek philosophers and writers, the great authors of Greece. Well, Greece, the Grecian Empire, preceded the Roman Empire, and the Romans, in a series of great battles, brought the Greeks into subjection. And the Romans took a lot of their learning and, to their mind, developed it, extended it, improved upon it. So if you think of Athens in the ancient world as a centre of learning, and Corinth and such places, how much more was Rome? If you were a child of a free Roman, not a child of a slave, but a child of a free Roman, you were educated up to the age of 13 in uh, the mathematics of the day and various other practical subjects, and after 13, your education concentrated on studying the great intellectuals of Rome, the great Latin works, their views, their opinions, their discoveries, their ideas. And you were steeped in that. And if you had the higher education of those days, you were an expert in the philosophers of Greece and of Rome. So Rome was a mammoth place of education and sophistication and a place, as I've said, of triumph and superiority. And who was the Apostle Paul? He travelled as a poor man. He could have been rich had he charged countless, countless people who were indebted to him for his preaching and his bringing them to Christ and new life. But he travelled as a relatively poor man. 
He didn't want anybody to think he was in this for money. And he preached in places where he would be viciously opposed and persecuted. He knew many sicknesses. Who was this man in the eyes of Roman citizens? A Jew, a citizen of a defeated realm, some place that was despised by them. Would he not be embarrassed to set up and to preach in Rome where he would be regarded as an object of pity or inferiority? That's the context in which he utters these famous words, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And the Greek word from which this is translated, ashamed, the Greek word is developed from the Greek for disfigured, a person who was badly, sadly disfigured may be ashamed of being in public, of being seen, of being an object of pity. And that's what the word comes from. I'm not ashamed. I don't recoil from uttering this in Roman circles because here is the real power. This is the power of God, he says. And it is. It is the greatest power in the world. And I shall seek very briefly to try to illustrate and to prove that to you. Gospel power. What's he talking about, power? Is he going to work great miracles? Are there going to be cosmic disturbances? Can he, like an ancient prophet, command the weather patterns and bring down the thunder and the storms or part waters? What's he going to do? Is he speaking of miracles? No, he's not. God can do any miracle he wishes, but there's a time and place for miracles. God used miracles in times gone by in various circumstances to authenticate his messengers and his word. But Paul isn't talking about things that have that kind of material wow factor. He's talking about power to change lives. It is the power of God unto salvation. Salvation, the word means rescue. The rescue of the soul. The rescue of the soul from a drab, dull, limited, restricted, material life where we only understand material things and we only cherish and desire material things. And one day we've got to stand before God and give an account of what we did with spiritual things and how we treated him and how we ignored him and rejected him. No rescue from materialism, rescue from deadness of soul, from spiritual lifelessness, from rebellion against God and alienation from him. The gospel is about rescue, the power of God unto rescue or salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Incidentally, within 
300 years of Paul uttering these words that he would be at Rome and he wasn't ashamed of the gospel on account of its power. The gospel had conquered Rome and Rome had changed and Rome was nominally at least Christian. What power is this? Roman religion was polytheistic and they took it very seriously. They believed in their gods. They had many of them, like the Greeks. But the chief god in the mind of the Romans was Jupiter. Jupiter was their principal god. And Jupiter's wife, supposedly, who was also his sister, was the god of women. And the second great god to Romans was Mars, the god of war. And that's, according to them, what made them world conquerors. And anybody who didn't worship Mars was a fool and appealed to him for success in war and superiority and domination. They despised the Jews, out of which, out of whom, came only one God, and they had many. But Paul still says, I'm not in the least intimidated. All the more need is there. Whatever happens, I'm going to preach the gospel there. Think of the illuminating power of the gospel. Just to begin, the power of the gospel, illuminating power. What do we mean by illuminating power? Well, there are certain things in the world, materially, that throw light on a whole area of knowledge. There are many such things. You think of the microscope, invented many, many years ago, and in more modern times, the electron microscope. Paul Darwin, when he described his theory of evolution, didn't have the electron microscope. To him, it was easy to imagine that life could come just from slime. Why? The simplest life was a single cell. You think of an amoeba. To Darwin, if you drew that cell, it was just a circle with a nucleus and a vacuole. And that's all there was to it. But then came the microscope and the electron microscope and suddenly it was understood what a world of complexity that simple cell is. How many structures were within? How many processes? How many chemical reactions? How much information was packed into it? And it dawned on mankind that this couldn't possibly originate in this earth. And now those who wish to be atheists, who say nevertheless life started somewhere, have got to park the origin of life on a distant galaxy outside our constellation that somehow made it through thousands of years of time to this earth. Something that can't be inspected, examined, or studied. The microscope 
was so illuminating. When you think of radar, I visited the little radar museum at Bordsey, in the grounds of Bordsey Manor, taken over by the government before the war. That's a village on the Suffolk coast. That's where the first radar station in the world, active radar station, was built. And suddenly, you had eyes across the North Sea, and you can see aircraft beyond the range of sight approaching. Radar, and what that led to, a window of information and illumination. Then you think of the doctors and the equipment they have now, and medical imaging, and x-ray, and CT scan, and all the others, through which they can see the bones, and now even the soft tissues, and things. Then you think of the laws of science, and how they were windows into understanding of natural phenomena, so that you could describe and predict many aspects of creation of the world, of natural phenomena. But none of these things, nothing in all of human learning or human literature, tells you about the soul describes to you Almighty God, can tell you of his plans and purposes, can tell you how to draw near to him, how to be reconciled with him, how to find his loving kindness and his saving power. Nothing can tell you of these things in this world. You think of the germ theory of disease. Amazing! first written about in the 16th century. But the man who described it and imagined it and spoke of it was ignored. Written of again in the 18th century. And that man was ignored too. Not until the 1850s, Louis Pasteur and men of his kind did it start to come into focus? The germ theory of disease. 1890, they discovered viruses. And so it went on from strength to strength. What an eye upon human biology and diseases, so many diseases, and so on. But only the gospel is an eye into the ways of God and how he saves men and women and draws them to himself. There's nothing like it. The gospel is the most powerful illumination. It opens up spiritual reconciliation with God, the way to heaven, eternal life. Nothing is as powerful as the gospel. The gospel gives us the most powerful transaction ever seen. You think of great transactions in the city of London or the great money markets where things valued at millions change hands, where vast transactions are accomplished. There's nothing to be compared for sheer scale and impact and durability 
to the transaction that took place when Christ came from heaven into this world and suffered and died on Calvary's cross to bear in his own body on Calvary's cross the eternal weight of punishment due to all sinners who would come for pardon and life to Almighty God. He took our punishment in order that he could have the right to give us his life, spiritual life, new life, transforming life. I'll come to that. This is the greatest transaction. In the history of this world, when the end comes, it will be seen that there are millions upon millions of people from every land and nation, every age of the world, who turned to God and repented of their sin and trusted in Christ and had their lives changed and were brought to know him. And it will be seen the price that Christ paid to secure forgiveness and eternal glory for all of them. There's no greater transactional power than the gospel, the cross of Christ. Christ, the eternal second person of the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, as we call him, equal with the Father, equally God, equally eternal, equally all-knowing, equally all-powerful, somehow came into this world, was incarnate, compressed himself amazingly into human flesh and personality to become the God-man, to live a perfect life, to teach, to show his love, his compassionate ways in the healing of thousands, and then to allow himself to be arrested and slain. He would go to Calvary, and while with outstretched arms nailed to that cross, God the Father would put upon him the guilt of all who would be saved and strike him instead of us, and he would bear it away. A punishment no one could have filmed, even if they'd had the technology, because most of it was within him, in his holy soul, in his being. He suffered the agonies and the separation from the Father, which we deserved forever. No greater transaction the power to illuminate is the gospel. The power of transaction, Christ bearing away the sin of all who turn to him. But it goes far beyond that. The power of love is no greater love than this. What is love? Not just biological love but real love, the deepest affection and regard, protective love, sacrificial love. Love is wonderful. 
And there are great examples of shafts of love on earth, even in this world, mothers to children, ideally wives to husbands, husbands to wives, times and shafts of love. But of course this is a sinful world and we're sinful. There's no perfect love. But the love of God. Think of the condescension of God for Christ to come down, down, down and to stoop to our sin-sick, fallen world. Think of all that he endured in his humiliation and his holy soul. Think of what he undertook for us. And who are we to be loved, to be died for, to be atoned for? Who are we? Enemies, hostile to him, against him. What love is this that you and I, rebels against God, so materialistic, indifferent, scornful, unbelieving, atheistic, slanderers of God, breakers of his every law, can be loved by Christ to the extent that he'd come and suffer and die for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Here's the power of true love. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. It's so powerful in every conceivable respect and so wonderful. Powerful in transaction, powerful in illumination. What the gospel tells us, I didn't mention this, illumination. How do you account for man? How do you account for the enigma of man? For the contradictions of man? No human thinkers can. No human literature can. Look at us. Look at men and women. The power of reason. The only creatures on the planet with the power of reason. We're the most sophisticated thinking mechanisms. Power of reason, free power of decision. And yet, for all that rationality, so irrational, at any time, there are umpteen wars taking place in the world, people tearing each other apart, destroying each other, not even in the animal kingdom, without the power of reason, does any species turn on itself with such ferocity as the one man that has the power of reason. How do you explain that? One of the great contradictions of mankind, only the gospel has the power of explanation. Man was created in the image of God, not a God, but in the image of God and the likeness of God with the power of reason. But he's fallen, and now he has a sin nature and a sin tendency. 
That's the explanation of the gospel. There is no other credible explanation for man. Look at men and women. Look at the conscience. Everyone here has a conscience. And if it doesn't operate for you, and you often feel terrible, and you feel bad, and you feel unclean, if it doesn't operate much for you, and it should, it operates for everyone else. You're very quick to see other people's faults and failings and sins and errors. What a lively, sophisticated conscience mechanism we have. Values, knowledge of right and wrong. The great contradiction, we cannot keep those values. We cannot maintain them. We cannot live up to them. We cannot live them out or perform them. What a contradiction is man. Where is the explanation in all of human literature? It isn't there. The power of God and the power of the gospel to inform. Only the gospel explains it. The fall of man. I could go into other contradictions in man. Everyone has an instinct for God. Everyone possesses it. We try to hush it up, but it's there. That's why there are thousands of religions in the world. Man-made religions. Everybody wants to make a religion that suits them. Testimony to the instinct that there is a God. And yet, we're hostile to God. And we don't want God. And somebody knocks on the door and says, can I tell you about the Lord God? We want to slam the door. And we don't want him, we're against him. Everybody has an instinct for eternal life. A life beyond. But curiously, contradiction, nobody wants it. Everybody wants this world, material things, the sum total of their happiness, nothing else. No human literature explains that, only the gospel revealed by God. This gospel has power. This gospel has power to change lives. You may hear this gospel that we're sinners and we need a saviour. And only Christ can save because only he has come to suffer and to die to bear away the punishment of sin. No other great religion has a saviour who came from heaven in mighty love to suffer and to die for sinners. And if God works in your heart, you say, I need that saviour. I need him. I need his forgiving love. I need to be reconciled with God. I need to be brought to know him. And you fall on your knees, as it were, in your heart. And you repent of your sin. And you say, Lord, I cannot earn my way to heaven. I trust in the suffering of Christ alone on Calvary. I trust in him 
and mercy and love alone. Save me, forgive me, make me a new person, relate me to thyself. And he does. And it is astonishing the changes we see and have seen down the centuries of time in people who have trusted in the Lord. The mean have become generous, the cruel have become kind, the unclean-minded have become clean and loyal and chaste, the unloving have become sensitive and tender and loving, the changes of character and nature that take place. Only the gospel has that power. The Romans couldn't change your character. They didn't even know how to turn a slave into a free man in any numbers. They can't change your lifestyle and your character so that you have a clean mind and new affections and tastes and a new will and power over your actions, heart, mind and will. Nothing can do that. Even the psychiatrist cannot do that. He may assist you in many ways, in many ailments, but he can't change you as a person and make you a better person. Only the gospel has the power to do that. Only the gospel has the power to take you to everlasting life, to heaven and glory. Only the gospel to in can introduce you to God so that you know him. Jesus, my shepherd, saviour, friend, that's what he is. You know him, you don't see him. You cannot touch him, but you certainly know him by faith. And he answers your prayers, and he helps you and strengthens you daily. And you love him, and you can trust him. And the more you walk with him, the more you know him and prove him. Only the gospel can introduce you to a personal inner walk with God. The gospel has power, and it alone has power, friends. This is the greatest power in our universe. The Christ through whom all things were made remakes individuals when they come to him. That's why the Apostle Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation, that means old things have passed away. All things are become new. The power of the gospel to change lives. We've just touched on a few things this evening. The illuminating power of the gospel. The transactional power of the gospel. Christ bears our sin on our behalf and gives us Liberty, pardon, forgiveness, new life, sets us on the road to heaven, a relationship with himself, a new nature. This is the gospel. No wonder the Christian church 
and I mean the true Christian church, people who sincerely believe in Christ, is the biggest empire in the history of the world. It's represented in every land and nation. It's represented in every age. The Assyrian Empire was mighty in its day. It fell. The Medo-Persian Empire was mighty in its day. It fell. There's no more. The Greek Empire rose and fell. The Roman Empire, the last of the true world empires, rose and fell. But the people of Christ are in every age, in every land. And when this time ends and the world ends, you will see that the greatest body of people are the people who came in to the kingdom of Christ. How was that power exercised? By the sword? By compulsion? By threat? By fear? No. The gospel is unique and the kingdom of God is unique. They were brought in by love. Great love. The love of God for individual souls. The dying love of Christ to redeem them and atone for their sin. The power of God to draw them near and change their hearts. Every Christian, saved by God, drawn to Christ, was at one time an unbeliever, an opponent of God, a self-seeker. I'm out for this world and what I can possess and how I will be seen and what I can achieve and what I can enjoy. That's what counts, not God, not the soul, not eternal life, not spiritual things, an enemy of God and a friend and lover only of me. Everyone had that position. The power of the gospel to change us. Some of the greatest atheists and the greatest sinners and the greatest opponents of God have been totally and wonderfully transformed and changed. This is what I'm speaking about tonight, the greatest power in the world. To turn you back on the gospel of Christ, dear friends, can I tell you this without offending you? If you do this, you are the greatest fool imaginable. This is the power of God unto salvation. How much we need him. How much he will do for us in his loving kindness and tender mercy. What a transformation there can be for us and our experience of life to come to him, to repent of sin, to trust wholly in Christ and to yield our life over to him. Let's pray together.
O God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us and help us this night. Teach us these things. Work in such a way by thy Spirit that none hearing these words may be offended. O Lord, in all thy drawing loving kindness and power, draw needy souls to thyself even from this night. Look upon us and bless us. We ask it in our dear Saviour's name, for his sake. Amen.